Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Father God, um, you are the God of this whole world. You are the God of Scripture who divinely wrote and preserved this word for us this morning. May you make ready our hearts and ears and minds for a passage such as this that confronts our flesh with such stark blows. Father, may we trust you for everything and in everything. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, a little over a month ago, Tyler preached a sermon in Luke 12, and he started by saying that this sermon could be entitled, Quotes from Jesus That Don't End Up on Coffee Mugs. And I am pleased to say that this is part two of that sermon of Jesus quotes that don't end up on coffee mugs. I had the privilege of growing up and spending the first 25 years of my life in the great state of Texas, and this is the land of coffee mugs with Jesus quotes on them, with little flowers on them, but I don't remember any of those verses uh, on any of those cups that I saw. You see, I grew up in the South where being a Christian is synonymous with blue jeans and sweet tea. I didn't grow up in a religious home or go to church on Christmas or Easter, but uh, I remember several times in school they had like a questionnaire or a survey that would ask you if you were like what religion you were. And I remember every single time putting down I was a Christian. So a question I wish I could have asked my adolescent self is, what does it mean to be a Christian? And so then I ask you this morning, what does it actually mean to be a Christian? A Christian? Are you a Christian because you're an American? Are you a Christian because you're a conservative? Are you a Christian because your parents were? Or is it just because it's easy? We are continuing our sermon series in Luke this morning, and we are in a section of the book of Luke where Jesus is really beginning to gain a lot of popularity. Last week, we saw Jesus say through his parable to go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. And so we see in this passage, in response to this parable, people are coming. But Jesus has some hard words for the crowd. He's beginning to thin out those who would call themselves disciples. Jesus wants to leave no room for misunderstanding what it truly means to follow Christ and to be one of his disciples. Today, this morning, we find ourselves, find ourselves by God's grace in the great state of Montana, which outside of Missoula is largely conservative and Christian. We are sitting in a church building where I would assume that for most of you all, it doesn't cost much if anything, to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while and have become comfortable in your walk with him. Or maybe you find yourself this morning uh, pondering the teachings of Jesus and what Christianity is all about. And my hope is that we would all truly consider this morning the words of Jesus and what it truly means to follow him. 
So if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open up to Luke 14. Like Johnny read, we're going to be in verses 25 through 35. I'm going to reread verse 25, and we're going to get into the context of this passage. Luke 14, 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. So to return to the question, oh, sorry, verse 25 sets the stage for this teaching of Jesus. Jesus' popularity is growing, and his teaching is radical. His parables are too deep to fathom. His healings are unbelievable, and his unexpected rebukes of the religious leaders at the time are garnering a lot of followers. Luke describes these crowds as great, so we can assume that they are quite large and everyone is clamoring to see him. To the growing crowd, Jesus is the controversial leader and rebel that's sticking it to the Pharisees and the miracle man doing signs and wonders. Jesus is the popular guy and everyone wants to be a part of the popular crowd. You can almost hear the crowd saying, yeah, I want to follow that guy who has this radical teaching and preaches about a coming kingdom. It's much better than the world we live in. No matter where you look in society today or how far back you go in history, crowds flock to popular figures, some good and some bad. Similarly, in this recruiting, uh, recording by Luke, we have Jesus, the creator of everyone and everything attracting a large crowd. And you would think that this would be a good thing. Why wouldn't Jesus want these large crowds to flock to him? Wouldn't he want to make it easy to follow him? The last time Jesus spoke like this was way back in Luke 9. But the difference between this passage and Luke 9 is that in Luke 9, he was just addressing his disciples, the 12 that were with him. He was beginning to set the stage for these 12 apostles to prepare them for the crucifixion and the persecutions to come that they would later experience. But here in Luke 14, Jesus is specifically addressing the crowds that are starting to grow and follow him. And so to return to the question of why he wouldn't want to make it easy for the crowds to follow him, Jesus himself says just one chapter earlier in Luke 13, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Jesus makes it explicitly clear that those who will find eternal life through him are going to be few. Jesus is going to reinforce his previous teachings here. He's going to prepare the crowds for what will truly mean to follow him. And so as we make our way through this passage, Jesus is going to appear to try to dissuade the crowds and you from following him. Jesus is going to lay out what it's going to cost you. And it's not going to be cute or easy. It's going to be hard. The hardest thing you will ever do. But in the hardest thing and in losing yourself, you find Jesus. And so what we lose of this world, we gain in Christ. And this will be our main point this morning. Following Jesus is costly and requires complete commitment. But in losing ourselves, we gain Christ. Following Jesus is costly and requires complete commitment. But in losing ourselves, we gain Christ. Jesus is going to give us a roadmap to true discipleship. And we're going to see this in two different ways. In verses 26 through 33, we're going to see three conditions in two parables that will show us the true cost 
of discipleship. And in verses 34 through 35, we will see the true, excuse me, the true taste of discipleship. So we're going to jump back into the text and read verse 20C, 26, excuse me, and see condition number one uh, of true discipleship, total allegiance. So verse 20C, 26, excuse me, I can't say 26 today. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. On the initial read of this text, I think some common reactions are, what the heck is Jesus talking about here? Or doesn't this go against everything the Bible teaches about loving and protecting our family? We read scripture in light of scripture, which means we read a portion of scripture not in a vacuum, but in relation to other portions of scripture. Therefore, Jesus is not calling us to actively hate or have ill will towards our family, just in the same way he's not calling us to hate or have ill will towards ourselves. Rather, he's challenging the priorities of the affections of our hearts. Compared to our love for Jesus, everything else should pale in comparison. Therefore, when we say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is Lord of my life, do you really realize what you are saying? Because Jesus is defining it here for you. Compared to him, there are no others. If choosing Jesus or your family ever became a choice for you, which would you choose? Would you hesitate? Would you balk? Would you have to weigh the choices first before choosing? So what does Jesus mean when he says this? Earlier on in the book of Luke, we saw Jesus leave his family behind when they wanted to keep him from his ministry. And do you remember what he said? He says in Luke 8, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus wasn't hating his family. Instead, he was preparing them for what the, t- the tension that the gospel brings to human relationships. And there's two examples I think that will be really helpful in showing what Jesus means here. Tyler and Sarah had the opportunity last fall to go visit um, some of the missionaries that we uh, support in the Middle East. And they shared a story uh, during that time of a young woman they met during their trip that came to faith in Jesus, knowing it was against the will of her father. And in that moment of salvation, she had to choose who she would obey. She had to be willing to hate the affirmation of her earthly father in order to find the affirmation of her heavenly one. And this currently has put her earthly life in danger. Yet, she's chosen Jesus over her family. You see, the gospel doesn't come to confuse or disorient. Instead, it comes to make sense and correct our priorities and our affections. Jesus isn't demanding something new that God the Father did not tell the Israelites before. Jesus is simply reinforcing the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods besides me. We don't usually balk at the first commandment when we hear it or we recite it when we're young. Yet Jesus says it in a new way here and our flesh immediately rages against it. What then does this say about our orders of affections when it comes to God and our families? Are we making idols or little gods out of our families or ourselves? 
John Bunyan, who we speak about a lot here, is the author of Pilgrim's Progress, among other books, and he was in prison for preaching the gospel and refusing to join the Church of England. He was warned explicitly by friends to not preach on the Sunday that he was arrested, for they had caught wind that he would be arrested if he did preach the gospel without a license at that time. His imprisonment, however, came with the consequences. He left behind a wife, Elizabeth, and four young children, one of whom was blind. Listen to his agony here as he writes about his experience in jail. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. So we come back to the same question, how is this condition worth it? How is choosing and loving Jesus above all relational ties worth it? Listen again to John Bunyan's words as he describes the worth of following Jesus, even into jail and away from his family. He writes, Jesus Christ was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. We finally get to the bottom of what makes all of it worth it. You get more of him. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the separation is worth it because you get Christ the King. And that has not only redeemed your life, but saves your soul. The woman in the Middle East and John Bunyan are both emphatically pointing to one word in verse 26. Did you catch it? If anyone comes to me, And this me is not some mere human that will one day let you down. He is the one that John says all things were made through. He is the one who tore the curtain in two and made made a way for us to come back into the garden. He is the one who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He is the beginning and end of all things. He is the alpha and the omega. This is the one who says, if anyone comes to me. Therefore, continually making Jesus supreme in all things is not actual loss. It's unending gain. So are we coming to Jesus for all of the perks? Are we coming to Jesus just like the crowd did so that we can be associated with the popular guy to see some healings, to meet some cool people along the way? Or are we coming after him as a deer pants for water? Are we coming to Jesus for Jesus? Or are we just interested in Jesus plus his benefits? The answer to that question could mean the difference between Jesus saying on that last day, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. But not only does Jesus tell us to hate our own families, but he goes one step further and says, yes, even his own life. We are living in a culture that screams from the rooftops to love yourself no matter what people think, or to just be you and no one else, or to just care for yourself, even if it's at the cost of others. But here, Jesus is telling us to do quite the opposite. He's telling us that we cannot be a true disciple unless we have total allegiance to ourselves, our, sorry, allegiance to him, even if that means hating our own lives. 
Do we love Jesus more than we love our lives? Do we love him more than the comforts this world has to offer? This has looked different for Christians across centuries and across contexts. For some, it's meant willing to go to Roman arenas and be killed by animals in the Roman arenas and drugged by your ankles, by horses, until you perished. For some, it's looked like crossing seas and bringing the gospel to heathen nations and peoples who had no knowledge or access to the gospel. And for others, it's looked like making less money for the sake of honesty and integrity to Jesus' teachings. We are all too prone to read this passage, realize that Jesus is not simply saying to, hate our, to not hate our families or ourselves and then move on. But Jesus wants you to stop and meditate on his words. Jesus loves our family. He loves you. But are you making an idol of your family and yourself? Do you love Jesus more than your family or your life? We're going to jump back into verse 27, and we're going to see condition number two of true discipleship, which is bearing your cross. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus does not mince words here in verse 27. He is as straightforward as he can be when he sets up this second condition to follow him. It's as if Jesus is saying, in case giving up your family or yourself wasn't enough, then I'm going to demand that you suffer just as I am about to suffer. This isn't the Jesus that was advertised on TV or the Jesus that was displayed to me growing up in the South. The Jesus displayed on TV was the Jesus that got all the glory every time a football player scored a touchdown or won a game, but interestingly not when he lost or got hurt. Jesus was a decoration on people's walls, not the creator God who hung on the very tree he spoke into existence. Jesus is the charm that hung on everybody's neck, not the son of man that bid you come and die. When Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, he is literally telling us that if we would come and follow him, we will suffer. There is no getting around it. There is no we could possibly suffer. There is no tithing or service or good deed that will ever eliminate this seemingly mandatory suffering. For Jesus does not say, pick up your bags and follow me. No, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I'm not sure what the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of bearing your own cross, but I confess that I am often thoughtless when I hear this verse. I know it, it's in the back of my mind, but do I truly know what it means? And I think that's probably because we have no reference for it, for people are not put on crosses anymore, except uh, when we read the accounts of Jesus. We have no reference. However, what if I said instead, pick up your electric chair and come and follow me? Or pick up your noose, tie it up, and follow me? Would that grab your attention just a little bit more? 
One pastor describes the cross like this. No manner, no manner of execution ha- that has ever been devised was more cruel and agonizing than to be nailed to a cross and hung up to die like a piece of meat. It was horrible. You would not have been able to watch it, not without screaming and pulling at your hair and tearing your clothes. You probably would have vomited. The question, oh, so when Jesus... Who, says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be to my disciple. He is inviting you to suffering and death. And so the question becomes, why? Why do we have to suffer if Jesus gave the once and for all sacrifice to atone for our sin? Shouldn't that mean that we as believers in Jesus Christ be devoid of suffering? And if you're not a believer this morning sitting here, you might be asking the question, why would I want to follow Jesus now? I came here for hope and for my sins to be forgiven. And you're telling me that if I put my faith in Jesus, I am 100% guaranteed to suffer. The Bible speaks to this actually very explicitly. It's not a hidden passage. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was converted Jesus sent him out saying, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Therefore, why are we continually surprised when suffering comes? Jim and Elizabeth Elliot were missionaries to the Aka tribe in the Ecuadorian jungles. And Jim and four other uh, men, the missionaries, left their wives and families one morning to make contact with this tribe. And they were martyred on the beachhead after making contact. Yet, in light of all this, his wife Elizabeth once said after her husband's death that the cross is the gateway to joy. The cross is the gateway to joy. Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the greatest evil this world has and will ever know. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, willingly went to the cross for the sins of others. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the greatest evil this world has ever known came the saving of souls. Jesus, the serpent crusher, who was foretold from Genesis 3, has finally come to restore the chasm between God and man. And through the greatest suffering, the greatest good came into being. Therefore, we can make sense of Elizabeth Elliot's quote that the cross is the gateway to joy. For without the cross, there is no salvation. And without salvation, there is no joy. So when Jesus says, in order to be his disciple, you must bear your cross and follow him, Jesus is inviting us into his sufferings. And if his sufferings and death brought about the greatest joy, then we can start to see that Jesus inviting us into his sufferings is never for nothing, but the privilege that leads to fruit and eternal joy. For Jesus is inviting us into suffering, not because he hates us and wants us to be miserable. As Paul would say, by no means. He means quite the opposite. He's saying, because I love you, come suffer with me. 
Our uh, sufferings on the path of obedience are like the crafting of a sword by a swordsmith. My favorite sword-making scene is from the third Lord of the Rings when Elrond commands his elves to remake the sword that had been broken by Sauron. And if you haven't seen it, it's a super intense scene where they're blowing fire into this furnace and they're beating this sword into... They keep burning... Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a swordsmith, but it appears that they beat it, beat it, put it in water, flip it over, beat it, and out comes a perfect sword. This is not dissimilar to the life of a Christian on the path of obedience. Sufferings of this world, like the hammering of a sword, makes us more and more into the image of Jesus by the refining fires of trials and pain. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12 about how a thorn is given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is given a suffering to continue to refine him so that he would not become conceited or boastful. And it's not that Paul didn't ask for it to be taken away. Three times he does. And Jesus says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And then listen to what Paul's response is in verse 10. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul responds, okay, Jesus, I will continue with the sufferings of this world because in it, I am made less and you are made made more. Or in another way, I will willingly pick up my cross and bear it. Because in my suffering, I become more and more like my Savior King who paid it all for me to be reconciled to the Father. So give it all to me. Whatever it is, give it to me. Elizabeth Elliot says it one more way. She says, whatever is in the cup that God is offering to me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief along with many more joys, I'm willing to take it because I trust him. Because I know that what God wants for me is the very best. I will receive this thing in his name. I need pain sometimes because God has something bigger in mind. It is never for nothing. And so I say, Lord, in Jesus' name, by your grace, I accept it. There are some that God will literally call to pick up their cross and be martyred for their faith. But for most of us, it's going to look different. And it's not going to be the same as your brothers and sisters sitting around you. It might look like dying to yourself over and over again while raising your children, putting down all your hopes and dreams and expectations and even your coffee to discipline them well. But Jesus says, it's worth it. Come and follow me. It could look like fighting to get out of bed every morning, even when your mind and your body tell you they can't do it anymore and for you to just give up. Jesus says, get up. It's worth it. Come and follow me. It could look like dying to the American dream and all that you've imagined your life would look like and moving halfway around the world to a place you know the jungles and the fevers would take your wife and your kids. And Jesus says, it's worth it. Come and follow me. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is who he says he is and he was raised from the dead, 
and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and is sitting and reigning and ruling, if all of that is true, then saying, yes, Jesus, you're worth it. I will come and follow you wherever you would call me, whatever that might cost me, because you are worth it, will become the easiest thing in the world. In the middle of Jesus giving us the conditions to be a true disciple of him, Jesus gives us two parables. And to help further illustrate how considering counting the cost of following him if we haven't already done so. So let's read verses 28 through 32 together. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Every single one of us counts the cost of almost everything that we do. And these range from easy to hard. For instance, you might weigh whether or not you should eat ice cream or not if you're lactose intolerant. Or to buy a new car, or a house, or to go out to eat that week, or to pursue having another child, or to get this surgery or not, to start chemo or not, to tell the doctors whether or not you want chest compressions or not if your heart stops beating. We all make calculated decisions. We all count the cost. And if you're a confessing Christian here this morning, do you remember counting this cost when you began to follow Jesus? I think most of us that grew up in the West would say that these teachings like this one came to us far after we've started following Jesus. We had everything to gain and nothing to lose by following him. But for the crowd listening and for believers in hostile parts of, this, of the world, this question of cost continually uh, plagues their mind. It cannot escape them. Jesus first gives an illustration of cal- calculating the cost of building a tower before you begin, so you will not be put to shame and mocked. I remember the first time I visited Missoula, Ellen and I were considering moving here, and we visited into the, in the winter, so we would not be uh, surprised by the winter since we grew up in Texas and Southern California. And I remember driving around town, and Tyler, who was our tour guide at the time, and I remember saying to him, oh, I didn't know there was a ski resort down in Lolo. And so if you've spent any amount of time in Missoula, you've probably noticed the apparent ski resort just south of Missoula, close to Lolo Peak. And if you don't know the story, there was a man who had a dream of putting in a ski resort in Lolo and started to clear a lot of land. Almost 400 trees were actually chopped down to make this happen. But before the man was able to finish, the Forest Service put an end to that because he had not secured the permits to cut down all the trees on the protected land that he was cutting them down on. And he was shut down, and now the slopes are a continual reminder and an eyesore of someone who did not count the cost of starting something he could not finish. We too must calculate the Christian life and the call to follow Jesus for the life will be hard. It will come at a great cost. But the one who bids you to come and follow him 
is the one who spoke this world into existence. He is the one who commands the winds and the waves, who will never forsake you or ever leave you. Verses 31 through 32, the second parable, describe, um, the parable describes what Jesus told about calculating the cost of going to war with other countries. There are traditionally two kinds of war. There's a war of conquest, and then there, where an army will set out to conquer and invade another country. And then there's a war of attrition. This is when a country or army will attempt to hold its ground in hope that they will hold out and endure long enough for the other army to give up. The Revolutionary War was a perfect example of this. The British wanted to take their colonies back, and so they set out to conquer the American colonies. However, the British did not fully count the cost of going to war with the people with a greater resolve or who were spread out far and wide. All the American colonies had to do was hold their ground until the enemy gave up. So too is Jesus highlighting our need to count the cost of following him, for it is life and death. For Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Souls are at stake here, and the enemy is prowling around like a hungry lion. Therefore, are you prepared to follow Jesus? Are you prepared for a war of your soul? But Jesus is the good shepherd who knows his sheep, and this shepherd will defend and protect you. He will even go willingly to the cross for your soul. Following Christ, true discipleship of Jesus is not an accessory to your life. It is literally life and death. It is not a video game. It is real life with real life consequences. So Jesus asks the question again, will you follow me? We're gonna jump back into the text and read verse 33. And this will be Jesus's condition number three of true discipleship, renouncing all that you have. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If this verse sounds familiar, it's because Jesus uses similar words for the rich young ruler in chapter 18 in the book of Luke. You can read with me verses 22 through 23 in uh, chapter 18. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This is Jesus' third condition of being a true disciple, renouncing all that you have. I spoke earlier about loving Jesus above your family and yourself, and then about the crucible of suffering and the pure and devoted allegiance to Jesus that it produces earlier. And now Jesus takes it one step further. If you know me, you know that I love to cook, and therefore I like cooking shows. And one of my favorite cooking shows is Guides uh, Grocery Games, or Triple G. And it's essentially a cooking competition where the contestants run around the grocery store with their baskets and have to cook a certain meal. And uh, the host usually uh, throws a spin in, and one of the spins is uh, no carts allowed. 
And so this means that the shoppers have to grab all the ingredients around the grocery store that they want to use for their dish, but they can only use their arms that they have to carry all the ingredients. <clears throat> and so they can only grab what they can hold, and it's great, and it's hilarious, and it's awesome to watch these people suffer just for $20,000. But is this not at the core of what Jesus is speaking of here? In this life, especially our Western one, are we holding on to too many things? We have our career, our dreams, our money, our country, our families. Are we running around holding everything we can in our arms and then are left with the inability to help others in need? Are we unable to serve Jesus by taking the gospel to the nations because we are so encumbered by our own pursuits and dreams Are we trying to save all the money we can so then we can rest and play golf and travel for the last 20 to 30 years of our life? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor during World War II and wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer was a Christian who was condemned by the Third Reich for their treatment of, because he called out the treatment of the Jews and was later imprisoned and hung for it. This was a man that intimately knew the cost of following Jesus. And he aimed at preparing those that were around him for what it would truly mean to follow Jesus. Uh, In his book, he writes, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of this encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Though Bonhoeffer wrote this in the 1930s, it couldn't be any more relevant than today. Have we given ourselves over to the American dream, to the fear that to follow Jesus, that means the end of a happy and joyful life? No, it is but the beginning. He does not bid us to come and die and then live a miserable life. He bids us to come and die to ourselves and gain all the treasures and joys of Jesus joys that money cannot buy and man cannot make. Have we renounced all that we have for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus? Are we willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ? If not, then Jesus says you are not a true disciple of him. So brothers and sisters, I plead with you this morning. Give it all up. Give it away. Renounce all that you have because he is the treasure we sell everything to get. And this will lead us to our last and final point this morning, which is the true taste of discipleship. And so if you'll read with me, verses 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt in that region of the world was often derived from the Dead Sea. 
They would let the sun naturally evaporate the water, and what was left was salt. But the Dead Sea had other minerals in it as well, and so some of what was left was not salty. It was literally worthless. It couldn't be used to season food or to preserve things. It was thrown onto the road where it would be trampled on by foot. There are certain passages in the Bible that are vague and up for interpretation sometimes, and even his parables were meant to shield some of the teachings that he had for those who did not have eyes to see or ears to hear. But these last two verses are explicitly clear, almost so that, and almost so direct that you miss it the first time you read it. The salt in this passage is referring to the disciples of Jesus. Jesus is direct as he has been throughout this entire passage. He is telling all who have ears to hear that if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus and you have no salt, no real substance, then you have no use to him. You are to be thrown to the road and to be trampled on by feet. Let that sink in for a moment. Examine yourself. Examine your life and the fruit in it. Brothers, sisters, friends, do not let your church membership, your church attendance, your tithing shield you from this examination. Jesus does not parse words. If you're not a believer in this room, take heed of the words of Jesus. He isn't looking for people to call themselves Christian and then do nothing. He is looking for salty disciples that love him more than anything in this world. He doesn't want your money or your good works or your surface level commitment. He wants it all. But in losing yourself, you get all of him. And that's worth more than all the riches in the world. The psalmist in Psalm 84 says it like this, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. By placing your faith in the one who lived a perfect life, was beaten, scourged, and shamed for our sins, and then went to the cross willingly to die for your sins and to die the death that we should have died, you will lose everything, but you will gain everything eternally. This life is but a vapor in time. The Lord is patient, but the judge is at the door. I beg you to come to the one who has overcome the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no one like him. Consider it. Count the cost. Then follow him or walk away for there is no in-between. If you're a believer in this room, let this serve as a warning to myself and to you. Are our lives aimed at glorifying Jesus in every way possible? In our home lives, in our work in and out of the home, in our schools, in the way we disciple our children? Are we helping others to follow and worship the triune God more and more because of our growing desire to know and love him? Or are you content with living a life that outside of the two hours that you are here on a Sunday morning look exactly the same as your unbelieving neighbor?
Because if this passage is saying anything, it's saying this. Following Jesus requires an absolute and unwavering commitment to himself. And he will not be shared with anyone else. He requires you to love him more than your family and yourself. He requires that you suffer for his name and he requires you to renounce all that you have. And if this sounds like a lot, it is. It's actually everything. He requires all of you, not part, but all. But for those who have been given the gift of salvation, do not lose heart, for we have hope. For the one who was cast out and trampled on by men has made you salty by the grace of God. And those who have been made salty have the assurance that he will preserve you to the end. Therefore, in losing yourself, you gain Christ. You gain the all-loving, all-satisfying, all-mesmerizing Savior of the world, worth more than all the treasures in this world. The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world is bidding you to the wedding feast that is reserved for all who would come. So come to him. Come to the cross and follow him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word and all the difficult difficulties and the ways that it confronts our flesh. Passages such as these are often hard to process and hear. But all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Father, when our flesh wars against your word and all of its applications, may we heed to your defined purposes that you mean to work in us. May we go to you on our knees in prayer as we seek to find all the ways in which we are not making you supreme in our life. And may you continue to shape and sharpen us into the image of your son. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.